welcome. <clears throat> welcome to our service this morning. God bless each one of you for being present. Obviously, a smaller crowd than normal. Um, for the visitors here, we're glad you're here too. Welcome, and I uh, hope you can enjoy your, your, your experience here with us today. Um, for your sake, there's been a wedding in Kansas today of one of our church members, and so quite a number of our people appear to have been uh, going to that wedding. And we're glad that they could go and support Ryan in that. Also, I had to wonder, as, as uh, Larry was doing the announcements, on the announcement about the, the offering next Sunday for the Hampton Schools, does everybody here remember and understand what that offering is about? Is there a question in your mind about that offering? I'm not sure. It's, it's uh, soon after the Hampton Outreach started, the, uh, there was a decision made with the... Um, regional ministers, the local Beachy churches here, that we would, for a period of time, support the school there with offerings. And I forget it was going to be scaled a certain way. I didn't check the details out. But that's what that offering next Sunday is about, to support and help. And it was done that way. decision was made that way because of um, the church there being, representing a variety of uh, people from um, most of our local congregations. I don't think any. I better leave it at that because when I assume things or try to think things on the fly like this, it doesn't always go so well. <clears throat> but that is the purpose for that offering. And with that in mind, too, I want to thank the church for the recent offering and your generosity again and, and sharing with us as a ministerial team. Yeah, God bless you for that. It is good to be here again after um, being away last weekend, sort of a busy weekend last weekend was, and it was good to be back home and um, plan to attend here this morning. This morning for the message, I, I decided to do somewhat of an overview, review um, the attributes of God that we've been, that I've been preaching on for the last number of months, and, and then um, draw some concluding thoughts from that, and as I pondered that, I actually toyed with the idea of this, for the service today, just simply taking the Psalms, uh, some of those Psalms that uh, in the in the in and around Psalm 91 that Larry read, you could take Psalm 90 through uh, 95 into 100, 106, um, and just take some time to to read them, and not have anything else for the the sermon. Just simply read Psalms because there's a lot of Psalms of worship, of of praise and recognizing God and who He is and how He relates to his people, how he relates to people um, that he has created. <clears throat> and I don't know if you've been ever been in a service where that was done. I, I still remember a time some years ago uh, before I was married when I attended at Weavertown Church on a Sunday morning and get Solstice there uh, for, for that particular message. I don't remember what all he read. I think it was a lot of scriptures, mostly even from the Old Testament, and just simply read scripture for the entire length of the, the sermon time. And when he started out and introduced the thought, I thought this is going to go a while, this is going to be long. Um, but I was actually surprised how uh, fast the time went. So in review of the attributes of God, um, I'm not going to re be reading a, a scripture throughout uh, the, the, the message time here this morning. But in review of the attributes of God, I'd just like to briefly go over and name the ones and just give some a few comments of the ones that we mentioned that we preached about in the past. 
Omnipotence was one. He is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. And one of the things that intrigued me as I studied that particular um, attribute of God was in thinking particularly of the power of God as it relates to the spiritual world. Um, it's easier for us to, or it's, I tend to think of the power of God and relate, as it relates to the natural world and the power that we see um, obvious in the storms and, and various uh, things like that in creation. But to think of the power of God in the spiritual sense, and especially um, Ephesians 1, 18 through 22, where he talks about uh, the principalities and powers and uh, God's power in, in redemption and providing salvation. A.W. Tozer said, Since he has at his command all the power in the universe, the Lord God omnipotent can do anything as easily as anything else. All his acts are done without effort. He expends no energy that must be replenished. His self-sufficiency makes it unnecessary for him to look outside of himself for a renewal of strength. All the power required to do all that he wills to do lies in undiminished fullness in his own infinite being. The omnipotence and the all-powerfulness of God. And then we looked at omnipresence. God being everywhere present and all at the same time. Psalm 139, we often refer to when we talk about the omnipresence of God and God being present everywhere we look, everywhere we go. Charles Spurgeon said, we believe that God fills heaven and earth and hell and that he is in the very space which his creation seems to claim. For creatures do not displease God and even the space which is occupied by his handiworks is still filled with himself. The rocky bowels of the unsearched out depths are full of God. Where the sea roars or where the solid granite leaves no interstice or vacuum, even there is God. Not only in the open place and in the chasm, but penetrating all matter and abounding everywhere in all and filling all things with himself. And then there's the omniscience of God. God being all-knowing, knowing everything. He has all knowledge of the universe, past, present, and future. Not only that, but he knows everything about everyone. The Bible talks about his understanding being infinite and him knowing um, even how many hairs we have on our heads. Then there's the creator God um, and the attribute of his creation, that he created the world by his word. Everything was created and no energy was spent, no energy was lost on his behalf in creating the world. Then there's the goodness of God, that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. With God's definition of human with God's definition of goodness, humanity would not be able to discern between kindness and cruelty. The greatness of God arouses fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. That's a quote again from A.W. Tozer. And then there's the justice of God. And as we, I was intrigued in our Sunday school lesson uh, this morning, uh, there's a number of the attributes of God that were evidenced in the Sunday school lesson. The warning uh, against evil, against false teachers and the warning against unbelief, the warning against uh, rebelling against God's authority, his sovereignty. 
uh, the justice of God evidence there, but then also the mercy of God in, in toward the end of the book and how we should deal uh, with some people um, according to, to, what words do we put to it? He says, of some have compassion making a difference and of others save with fear pulling them out of the fire. The justice and mercy and goodness of God was evidenced in our Sunday school lesson this morning. The justice of God is based in his own character. It is not to be ignored. It will not be overturned or dismissed. This past week, the big news in, in, in the world scene, and especially in our country, was the over, overthrowing of Roe versus Wade. But when God declares, makes a call, a, a, a call of judgment or justice, it will never, ever be overthrown or changed or dismissed. God's justice is final. It is based on his character. When infinite equity or justice encountered our chronic and willful inequity or wickedness, there was violent war between the two, a war which God won and must always win. But when a penitent sinner casts himself upon Christ for salvation, the moral situation is reversed. Justice confronts the changed situation and pronounces the believing man just. Again, a quote, and I did not uh, write down who um, I quoted that one from. So I can't give credit where credit is due. God's justice is not, when, when God forgives us or forgives our sins, it's not that his justice is overlooked or overrided, but it's that his justice was satisfied through Jesus Christ. And then the mercy of God, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone from, for whom, with whom it is one, it, I'm sorry, compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. It has been called or described as unmerited favor. Interestingly enough, the Old Testament actually has four times as much to say about mer- the mercy of God than the New Testament Mercy can be consciously experienced by being aware of our need for it and fully believing that the justice of God has been satisfied by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. It is our ignorance and unbelief that limits the effect of God's mercy in our lives. I think in particular it's our unbelief that limits the effects of God's mercy in our lives. God's mercy is not limited. It's our response to it that is limited. God has always dealt in mercy with mankind. It is when his mercy is despised that he deals with injustice. And then the wisdom of God. God is all wise. We see his wisdom in his revelation of himself to mankind, in, re- in creation, in redemption, and virtue. In the Old Testament, wisdom directed God's people to a life of virtue based on the fear of the Lord, the laws of creation, and living in community with God's people. And the New Testament takes it a step further it is, takes it through Jesus Christ, the personification of wisdom, that we can live out of the wisdom that he gives us. <clears throat> then there's the infinitude of God. And I think to me this is one of the most intriguing uh, attributes of God, his infinitude. He never had a beginning. He never had an ending. He always is. He always was. He's not limited by anything. The character, infinitude is the character of being limitless or endless in space, extent, or size, impossible to measure or calculate. And we don't understand that. 
We talk of unlimited wealth or boundless energy, but it's a misuse of the terms because we are limited by time, space, and matter, and that's how we measure things. I also mentioned in that study that through the collection and analysis of data, much of life has become calculated and predictable. And I say much, understanding that there's a lot also of life that we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what the future holds. But by scientific method, we can expect a lot of results out of things that we try and do. Daniel had a hip replacement surgery recently. That's a calculated, measured a well-practiced uh, procedure that was um, considered fairly normal, I think, nowadays. I know open-heart surgeries today are much more normal than, or normal, I, I, I quote, in quotes, than they were 50, 60 years ago because by the collection and the analysis of data, they've been able to figure out um, how this works. And, and I wonder sometimes, um, has this affected our view of God? Have we lost our wonder of God? and the wonder of um, how he relates to people, how he relates to the world. A.W. Tozer wrote, we ought to stop thinking like scientists and start thinking like psalmists. And then there's the sovereignty of God. God being sovereign, he bows to nothing and no one. He has complete control, complete authority, and complete understanding of everything and everyone. Then there's the holiness of God, one of the essential attributes of his divine nature it is absolute moral perfection and freedom from moral evil it awakens and deepens the human consciousness of sin it is the highest goal of human aspiration hope and endeavor it's the holiness of god that can straight that that makes us aware of who we are before him and we looked at different people especially thinking of isaiah one of the most one of the ones that comes to our mind quickly when we think of Man's response to the holiness of God. Then there was the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is the dependability, loyalty, and stability, particularly as it describes God and his relationship to human believers. And an amazing thing that, that we can, if we take the time to study and look at, is that is how many promises he has given, how many promises he made. They can probably be numbered in the thousands and never one of those promises ever broken. His dealings with sinful man present one unbroken method record of faithfulness. As, as with all attributes, God is not bound to a definition of faithfulness. He is the definition of faithfulness. Then the last attribute that we looked at was the love of God. Love is the highest characteristic of God, probably the one that people like to talk about the most. It is the attribute in which all other attributes blend and work in harmony. It doesn't soften or reduce what we consider the harsher attributes, but it simply blends them harmoniously. God is always all of his attributes all the time, the fullness and completeness of his attributes, and we, we have a hard time um, comprehending that uh, and, and, and fathoming that in our minds. The love of God underlies everything he is doing, has done, and will do, even when it doesn't make sense to us. 
The ultimate proof and evidence of his love is in redemption. The biggest wonder of all, when we think of God and all of who he is, is his workings with humanity, and especially his evidence in the plan of salvation, which takes me to the main part of what I want to talk about in, in the message this morning. Thinking of God and the way who he is, the marvel and wonder of who he is, and then how he has his workings with humanity. Now he has chosen to offer to us the plan of salvation. Second Peter 1, 2 through 4 says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to the glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Again, easy to see a couple of the attributes of God in those few verses. But God's desire is that God has given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. We, he has given what we need to live a godly, a, a righteous life today in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. But it's, the key is through the knowledge of him, and that's why I think it's important for us to study God and the attributes of God, study who he is, because it's, it's only as we understand God and, and who he is that, that our depth, our, our level of understanding of God, how shall we say this? I believe our, our level of spirituality or walk with God is only as good as our knowledge and understanding of God. And that's what Peter is writing here. Grace and peace multiplied through the knowledge of God. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and, and godliness through the knowledge of God. We're called to glory and virtue, and he has enabled us to follow and to live up to that calling. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> My mind was drawn to this then as well. Romans chapter 8, and I'll read verses 1 through 17. And this, this chapter is particularly addressing the law and what the law was not able to do and what God could do through the work of the Spirit. And I think it's part of what the marvel, uh, it illustrates to us somewhat the marvel of God and his working with human, his attitude and his working with mankind. Romans chapter 8, I'll read verses 1 through 17. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. Actually, I should start in chapter 7. Uh, let's start in verse uh, 23. Actually, the sentence starts in verse 22. 722, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, 
but with the flesh the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. God's spirit bears witness with our spirit. And that in itself is a marvel. And through that communication, we can know that we're sons of God which is another marvel to be considered sons of God, children of God. Let's look at verse 1. The Bible in basic English says this verse in this way, For this cause those who are in Christ Jesus will not be judged as sinners. It's interesting. For this cause those who are in Christ Jesus will not be judged as sinners. What is the this cause, or as the King James Version puts it, the therefore <clears throat> it's referring definitely back to chapter 7 and chapter 7 is that Paul vividly pens the, the battle between the flesh and the spirit the, 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 tug and the push and pull between what we know to do and what we do and what we ought to do and what we want to do and, and, and that constant tension that constant um, they recall a battle within our, our, our hearts and our lives. It's been debated what this chapter is describing. Is it Paul's testimony before or after his conversion? It seems to me that just the fact that he's aware of the battle and, and awareness of sin would indicate that it was after his conversion, describing Paul after his experience after his conversion. <clears throat> Paul 
But I think there's a few points in this chapter 7, and I won't read it, but that a few points that we need to remember as we consider this is the law makes us aware of sin. That's the purpose of the law, to make us aware of sin. Interestingly enough, the law brings life. Now, we don't generally hear that said, I don't think, or at least not emphasized, but verse 10 would indicate to us that the law brings life. The commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. You see, it's when we disobey it, when we sin, that it brings condemnation and death and guilt to our lives. Romans 7, verse 12 says, It is holy, it is just and good. Again, all attributes of God. The problem is not that of ourselves we cannot please. The problem is that of ourselves we cannot please the law. So it's not that the law is wrong. It's that we can't of ourselves please the law. And so we need some help. Under the law we are condemned. It was never intended to cleanse us from sin, nor is it able to. It is only to make us aware of sin. And we can be thankful for that awareness of sin. Without that awareness of sin, we would be lost. We would be forever damned. So it's as we have that, as the Spirit works in our lives and makes us aware of sin and our disobedience and our need for a Savior, that we can come to him and find salvation and find hope. With that in mind, then, verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1 starts out, There is therefore now no condemnation. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It's walking after the Spirit, not walking after the flesh that brings us freedom. This freedom from com- condemnation, verse 25 tells us, comes through Jesus Christ. When we have portions of scripture like 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2, and I will read those familiar verses. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Through Jesus Christ, as we walk in him, as we walk in the spirit, we have Jesus Christ as an advocate with the Father. And I picture him, when I read these verses, I often picture Jesus sitting, I don't know what he's beside or in front of or wherever, but in the presence of God and pleading on our behalf to God, saying, for this one I died, for this one I died, for that I died. And reminding God, I don't know God, that God needs a reminder. It's just how we as humans think of things so that we can uh, process them in our minds. But Jesus, pleading our case, and that's what John says. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, pleading our case and saying, this is what my blood was shed for. And that applies to those who are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Who can be in Christ? It's often mentioned in the New Testament, John 15, verses 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 6 is the, the, the passage about abiding in the vine, abiding in, in Christ. In Philippians 3, 8 through 10, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, 
and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Again, the marvel that we're talking about. God in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. We're not getting what we deserve, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, be, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How does an in Christ person live? Romans chapter 8 gives us some ideas and gives us some suggestions. And again, this isn't new to us, but I feel like I need a reminder. And, and how does an in Christ person live? We live in the flesh, and we live on this uh, sin-cursed earth. And that's what we know. That's the first is it the first thing that comes to our mind? I might be um, betraying my um, humanity by saying that. But it is what we see. You wake up in the morning, that's what you see. We see this, the physical world around us. And we tend to live in the flesh. We can tend to get, in our Sunday school lesson, we talked about being caught up with the cares of this life. Or was it uh, Keith mentioned that in the devotional? Being caught up in the cares of this life. It's, it's what we're prone to, and so we need these reminders. What does, how does an in-Christ person live? An in-Christ person does not walk after the flesh, this portion of Scripture tells us. Verse 5, they mind the things of the Spirit. They that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit do mind the things of the Spirit. In our Sunday school lesson, um, the phrase was, was uh, there of, uh, earnestly contending for the faith. I had to think about that, or this verse also when we were talking about that in Sunday school, earnestly contending for the faith. It's a choice that we make to walk in the flesh, to walk after the things of the flesh or after the spirit. We decide that, and we, it's who chapter 6 talks about uh, yielding ourselves, at whoever we yield ourselves to, whoever we, whatever it is that we choose to follow. That's who we become or what we become like. <clears throat> Fleshly mindedness, verse 7, puts a person at odds with God. People that, at verse 8 tells us, fleshly minded people cannot please God. And then verse 9 says, but you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. So be that the spirit of God dwell in you. The in Christ person walks after the spirit. They mind the things of the Spirit. They focus on spiritual things, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, cultivate a, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. What is your go-to? What is the first thing that you read when you have a few minutes? What is the first thing that you look at? Or what is the first thing that you think of? What is the first thing that you read? Those, some of the, down to some of those practical details is, 
is where we need to decide between the flesh and the spirit and what we want to fill ourselves with. I didn't think about it after it was here this morning, but if I would have a sponge up here and I would have a couple containers of whatever, maybe oil in one, maybe um, water in another, and you put that sponge in, whatever, and a sponge receives, it absorbs, it, it, it takes in whatever, it, it surra- whatever it's surrounded with, and it would become. If you, if you dipped it into a container of oil, it would become an oily sponge, and when you squeeze it, oil would come out. And I think that gives us, that can be a little bit of an illustration of our lives, too, and how it is with us. It's what we fill ourselves with. It's what we absorb. It's what we take in. That's what comes out uh, when we're squeezed out. The in Christ person mortifies the deeds of the body. Verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Verse 2 talks about the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. What is the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus? The law means the rule, command, or influence is that which governs or controls everything a, ma- a person does. It leads us to oneness in, with Christ. It brings spiritual life. The law of the, of spirit, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus brings spiritual life. When we choose to follow him, as I've been mentioning, when the spirit of Christ Jesus is the prevailing rule or in command or influence in our lives, it brings life and freedom. That's what God does. That's what he wants to give to us through the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of sin. It frees us from the condemnation of the law and enables us to walk in the spirit and, walk and follow him. So I marvel this morning at the, the, the working of God uh, th- when we think of his greatness and his awesomeness and, and he has made provisions for us to walk righteously in this, de- in this world that we live in today and he has given us portions of scripture to us like Romans chapter 8 that guide us and direct us and show us how to live. And so I challenge and encourage each of us to take a look at this and consider how this applies to our daily lives and our walk with him. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father.